Hello and welcome to Forex Focus, UBP's FX podcast. I'm Peter Kinsler, Global Head of FX Strategy at UBP. And today I'm going to look at what markets have in store for the British pound, which rallied significantly following last week's Bank of England meeting. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Dixon, a former colleague of mine, and indeed one of the UK's most respected and leading financial market economists. Uh, so Peter, how are you doing? How, uh, how are you enjoying the UK, uh, UK summer so far? It's, it's not bad, is it? I mean, the summers go. It's not quite up there with 2020, but uh, I'll settle for it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, uh, been mixed. Uh, <laughs> a bit like the UK economic outlook, uh, I would say. Um, a, a kind of question for you regarding, I would say, what your thoughts are on last week's Bank of England meeting. Um, you know, that they raised their inflation um, forecast, expecting sort of something close to 4% uh, by, by the end of this year. Um, although they, they'd be expected to decline next year. Um, wondering, wondering really what your thoughts are on UK inflation, and I guess more broadly the inflation outlook sort of in, in most developed markets. Starting with the, you know, the UK, I mean, as you quite rightly pointed out, the bank predicted 4% inflation Q4 this year, Q1 next year, which is pretty much double what they were predicting back in November of last year. And don't forget, that was the point at which they... They ramped up the asset purchases. And of course, here we are nine months later, they're still buying them. And, and the other thing which I think struck me from the inflation report was this idea that next year there will be you know, an excess demand gap. In other words, a positive output gap. Now, for a central bank, which has always said that they care about inflation, you know, you've got the perfect storm for all the sort of economic fundamentals in place to think about reducing some of that monetary easing. And if you look at the the NPC minutes, I mean, there was only one member who talked about potentially halting asset purchases, which strikes me as being slightly odd given the, the fuel which the bank has already put on the fire. So I think if you look at where the economy stands right now, the inflation profile might be seen as a bit of a worry. But, you know, I tend to share the, the BOE's view but we will see you know, a sharp inflationary spike in the near term, the next six to nine months. But thereafter, it's likely to, to dissipate. And I think the same is probably true in you know, most developed markets. I think inflation is perceived to be a, a near term problem. But that said, it probably won't go back to the significantly below target rates that we saw prior to the, the onset of the pandemic, because you know, there were just a lot sort of bottlenecks in the economy, which have left resources trapped in as it were, the wrong place as the economy you know, recovers from the pandemic. And as a consequence, I think we're going to end up with a, a slightly higher inflation recovery than we might have predicted maybe a couple of years ago. That's, it's kind of interesting, you know, <clears throat> listening to your comments. And indeed, one, one thing that struck me from the BOE last week was the comments regarding the uh, labour market. Um, what I found pretty interesting was that on the one hand, they said, look, you know, um, unemployment is, a, is around 1% higher than pre-pandemic levels. And then at the same time, they did note that vacancy rates were, were 20% higher than the average of 2019, um, and indeed highlighted that certain sectors were having significant difficulty finding workers. Um, what do you make of this labour market kind of conundrum, if, uh, you know, if I can put it that way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, just a, a short-term disequilibrium, hopefully short-term disequilibrium, as it were. I mean, what has happened over the course of the last uh, 16 to 18 months has been that the economy has taken a, a big hit. Certain sectors which um, you know, were, were big absorbers of labour um, previously, perhaps now aren't. And I'm thinking particularly of the service sector, 
where there has been a significant shakeout. Um, it's questionable, I think, whether a large proportion of that Labour will, you know, will, will find a home where it, where it once had. I think it's going to be a significant you know, reallocation of Labour. Uh, so, you know, over the course of the next year or two, I, I continue to expect to see, you know, this higher frictional unemployment remain in place. Um, although the bank does expect it to go down quite significantly over the course of the next three years or thereabouts. Um, vacancies, I think the vacancy problem will begin to dissipate quite quickly, too. Uh, it's just, again, I think it's a short term shock. But obviously, the one thing we don't know uh, is how quickly the economy will adjust once the uh, the government starts to take away the, you know, the the full extent of its support measures. And we'll only really experience that, I think, over the course of the, the autumn and, and beyond. So, you know, there are lots of, I think, bottlenecks in the, in the labour market, lots of risks in the labour market, which have yet to be, you know, fully uh, worked out. And, and, and I think um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, I think, a hard role for, for many people, particularly those who are trying to enter the labour market at a time when, you know, demand is uh, is all over the place. Yeah, no, no, I, I quite agree. Um, I, I suppose sticking on the subject of the Bank of England, um, we saw during the press conference that Billy Governor Bailey uh, spoke about an eventual balance sheet reduction process. Um, and I, I guess there were kind of two stages to, the, to this. The first being that they would simply uh, stop reinvesting the principal and coup coupon payments from, from their asset purchases when the bank rate reaches 0.5%. And then they may even contemplate asset sales, so literally, you know, you know, explicit outright balance sheet reduction when the bank rate reaches one percent. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and, and do you think it's feasible and realistic? Uh, what uh, I'd like to get your view there. Yeah, I mean, the, the balance sheet reduction, I think, is something which has been a topic of conversation pretty much since the bank started QE, and indeed, I think all central banks started QE. As far as I can remember, I think the Fed is the only bank which has tried in any meaningful way to, to, to reduce its balance sheet. So, you know, looking forward, um, you know, what the Bank of England has said is, you know, we, we will reduce it. Um, if, I, if I remember my calculations correctly, um, if the bank does what it says and, and, and just simply stops reinvesting all of the uh, bonds which become available over the course of the next, uh, let's say, nine years, it will be able to halve the size of its balance sheet in, 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 uh, in money terms. I mean, the average or the median uh, duration of bonds on the balance sheet is about eight years. So, you know, it could simply halve the balance sheet in, uh, in, in monetary terms by, you know, following the, the practice of, of allowing it to run off. Um, but even if it weren't to significantly, uh, you know, end or significantly run down its balance sheet in, in money terms, don't forget that as you know, as long as the economy continues to grow in nominal terms, the balance sheet relative to GDP, you know, will fall quite sharply over the course of the next few years anyway. So I think you know we probably shouldn't get too you know hung up on the this question of whether the bank needs to reduce the amount of you know money holdings it has. Um, but I think going further and talking about potentially selling off assets um, is going to cause, in my view at least, a, lo a lot more problems that it might resolve. I mean, simply allowing the balance sheet to run down is going to lead to a significant, you know, a significant enough acceleration in, in the pace of um, the decline. But adding to that uh, additional asset sales at a time when the government is still going to be trying very hard to you know, place bonds on the, on the primary market, 
uh, is probably going to significantly push up bond yields. And I think it's, in my view at least, it's a risk that the bank doesn't need to take. I mean, I think it's, a, it's something that the bank has said it will do because it, 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 it kind of has to say that it, it is prepared to consider all possibilities. But I think just simply allowing to run down by not reinvesting is going to lead to a significant enough reduction. Yeah, I, I quite agree. And, I, and certainly from, from my perspective, we've seen the Fed, you know, which was the only central bank which tried to, you know, to wind down its asset purchases. And, you know, they tried that basically over an 18 month, two year period. And it, it didn't really seem to end all that well for them, uh, I don't think. So, so perhaps, as, as you say, it does create an awful lot more problems than, than it solves. Um, and I guess speaking of which, we can, we can then move to Brexit and, um, and discuss really, you know, what do you think, you know, now that we've, we've you know, we've done Brexit in a sense, um, you know, what do you think about the UK's growth potential once the pandemic ends and we're kind of, we're back dealing with this, you know, new economic situation where, you know, we've, we've done Brexit, we now have a, you know, we, we avoided a hard Brexit, you know, kind of in, in name only, perhaps. I mean, what are your thoughts really on on the longer term impact um, from Brexit and, and indeed the, um, you know, the, the yeah, outlook going forward? I think it's fair to say that the economy has, you know, slowed to, you know, even aside from the, the pandemic related problems, I think the economy slowed uh, quite sharply um, after the 2016 referendum. And I did some calculations recently, which tried to come up with this sort of synthetic GDP indicator, which is the economy uh, would have grown uh, if it had continued to grow broadly in line with um, its, its main trading partners. And what that suggested to me was that by the early months of 2020, in other words, just before the pandemic hit, uh, the UK economy had grown roughly by, oh, sorry, it was 4% smaller than might otherwise have, have been expected. And I think that's pretty much in line with the sort of outcome that many people predicted back in 2016. You know, uh, Brexit would be a bold throw problem. It wouldn't be necessarily a, a big one-off hit, uh, assuming that some form of um, uh, agreement was in place, but it would certainly impact upon the growth rate going forward. Um, so that certainly seems to be where we were back in 2020. Difficult to say where we are now, obviously, because the pandemic has had such a, a major impact upon, upon the numbers. But, um, you know, I, I think that this idea that the UK has lost, you know, 45%, is 45% smaller than it would otherwise have been, uh, it sounds about right. Uh, and possibly by now, you know, maybe even, even further below the, uh, the, the, the expected uh, level. Um, so what are the factors which are driving that? Well, on the one hand, you don't have quite the same labour impetus to drive the potential growth that you once had, because obviously there are curbs on uh, numbers coming in from the EU. Um, capital investment has been pretty dreadful, actually, over the course of the last decade. Um, you know, multi-factor productivity in the UK has been has been lousy. Uh, it's worst growth rate, I think, in something like a century. So the UK's potential growth rate, which I would have put at something like one and a half percent prior to uh, the pandemic is probably even slower now, and obviously it might pick up over the course of the next few years. But you know there is a sense that the uh, the Brexit will impact upon potential growth, and obviously it will impact upon actual growth because much of the evidence does suggest that you know, exports to the EU um, are growing much more slowly than they were even in the course of 2020. Sure. Um... And it's it's kind of interesting, Dan. I mean, if if we talk about you, you, you touched briefly on the the productivity growth problem, and, and uh, 
I know certainly, you know, that the former BOE chief economist, uh, Andy Haldane, he's written and spoken extensively about the UK's productivity problem. Um, do, you, do you think, in, in your opinion, so if this productivity growth problem persists, um, do you think that the UK authorities might move towards uh, so-called modern monetary theory style policies, you know, in which we see huge fiscal deficits, um, you know, central bank printing money, and that being used to sort of, you know, to pay for all, all, all kinds of things, and, you know, and, and capital in the, in investment, etc. Um, do you think that's a chance, uh, or, or, you know, are we even already doing this to some extent? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that uh, overall? I think there were two aspects of that question. On, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it which is causing productivity growth to be so so slow and so sluggish? Uh, and then, of course, the second aspect is, you know, what do we do about it? Well, what is driving that productivity slowdown? And I'm not convinced that anybody's giving me a, a particularly you know, killer argument to say this is the answer. Um, but I think it's potentially things like um, simply a lack of investment. Uh, there are, there is a sense that, um, you know, maybe technology isn't percolating through the economy in the way that it once did. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, technological transfers throughout the economy have slowed. And so in other words, you know, companies which are not on the cutting edge of uh, technology perhaps are suffering from a, from a, from a lack of uh, technological um, innovation, as it were. So that, that, again, is a structural factor which potentially is, is, is holding back productivity growth. Um, it could all be simply that the industry performed particularly well prior to the, um, the GSC in 2008 just aren't performing as strongly anymore. And I'm thinking of, of high, you know, high value added sectors such as finance. Uh, the, the fact that the oil sector, the oil and gas sector was no longer quite as important as it once was might be another factor. So, you know, I think all of these factors together suggest that, you know, the government stepping in with some form of, um, you know, fiscal boost fiscal policy probably isn't the right strategy. Now, you know, I think we both know that there have been calls from the Bank of England to, you know, to step in and have some form of productivity target. I mean, I think that's really just bizarre and misses the point of what central banks are there to do. Um, but, you know, whether governments can address this problem via, you know, an expanded fiscal um, deficit, I, I think is questionable. Um, but I do think there is a role, having said that, for you know, for an expanded fiscal policy. And I think as we've discussed over the years, um, over the course of the last you know decade and a half or whatever it is, um, governments have basically refrained from um, implementing an expansionary fiscal stance, and monetary policies have to do heavy lifting. You know, I do think we're beyond that now. I think we're in a, at a stage where um, you know fiscal policy is going to be a much more aggressive tool. Um, but when it comes to MMT in particular. Um, you know, like most mainstream economists, uh, I, I, I'm highly sceptical that it, that it adds any value. The NMT, what does it mean? Magic money tree? The idea that you can simply print money without limit uh, suggests that, you know, a lot of people don't remember their economic history. Uh, I go back to, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast will, will know their economic history about how that ended for Germany, you know, 100 odd years ago. Um, I mean, MMT is predicated on the assumption, that, or the basis rather, that there is no government budget constraint. Well, technically there isn't, but it does have, you know, long-term economic consequences. And I think as a consequence, anyone who advocates MMT as a solution to the problems that we face here in uh, the, the Western world uh, is, is going to open up a, a whole new can of worms. 
Indeed, yeah, it's, 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 it's a fascinating um, subject and, and I think one that will will we'll get more and more um, you know, airtime in the coming years, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure. Um, so I, I guess really we could kind of finish off and I'll, I'll ask you a question in, in the sense of, in light of the above arguments, um, you know, what are your views on sterling? Uh, uh, the reason I say this, so if I look at sterling, it trades at very cheap levels if we look at most of the traditional measures that, that strategists use, you know, in trade weighted terms and real effective exchange rate terms, all that stuff. Um, but is it cheap for a reason? You know, is it because we have the, you know, the, is there still, uh, you know, an underlying Brexit uncertainty premium in, in sterling? Um, you know, what are your thoughts over the medium term? Um, and, and indeed, I, I guess one thing kind of I found interesting from last week's BOE meeting was that sterling appreciated following the, the BOE meeting. Um, I, I guess I kind of expect, you know, a, a fair few MPC members to come out and to talk rather hawkishly. Uh, to get a little bit of a sterling appreciation and, and therefore maybe reduce the imported inflation effects in the UK, you know, over the coming six months. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on both of those those things? One, you know, the, the, the sort of, you know, medium-term outlook for sterling, and then secondly, you know, whether we can expect uh, a continuation of the reason, you know, the recent appreciation we've seen. Well, maybe I can take those in reverse order. Um, I mean, if we look at, you know, where, where we've been over the course of the last six months, in a way, I've been slightly surprised at the extent to which sterling has rallied. Um, you know, given the, the headwinds into which the UK began to sail when the, the Brexit uh, so-called deal was concluded in December. Uh, that said, I mean, as you pointed out, it's still relatively cheap. But I, I do I sort of think it's cheap for a reason. Um, and I think there is a big Brexit uncertainty premium in there. Um, maybe the markets have overdone that risk premium in the same way that perhaps they overdid it in 20, over the period of 2017 to 2020, when you know, the currency fell off a cliff and, and generally has clawed its way back a little bit. So I, I, you know, I do think that over the course of the next you know, year or two, the, the pound is likely, absent any other shocks, to, to broadly hold on to its recent gains and, and maybe claw a little bit higher. But you know, that huge premium that you, you know, mentioned, I think will remain in place. I mean, I, I just don't think that the, the economic tailwinds behind the UK uh, are sufficient to, to propel sterling significantly higher. Um, medium term, again, I don't see any great reason to be hugely optimistic. Obviously, not, not a great pessimist either. But, you know, I think going forward, um, the UK will need to demonstrate to the markets that the policy regime that it has in place is sufficient to deliver uh, a reasonable uh, growth rate that it has inflation under control, uh, and that, of course, the current account deficit isn't ballooning uh, as a consequence of, of Brexit, which certainly is a, is a risk factor. So, you know, in the medium term, yeah, would I, would I be long sterling? Moderately, perhaps. Would I short it? Maybe not. But, you know, would I, would I be advocating an extremely long position? Uh, at this stage, I'm afraid, and maybe this is the economist in me rather than the market guy, you know, it's kind of it's very hard to be positive about a currency which has been, you know, taken such a kicking, you know, over the course of the last, uh, you know, five years. Sure, and I guess really, you know, it's it's um it's one thing that it's, it's taken a kicking for for good reasons, you know, um, all of which I think our, our listeners will will know well about. But it's it's another thing altogether to become super bullish on the currency, and in order to do that, you would need to see very positive catalysts, you know, to propel sterling higher. 
um, be that be that in the form of a much higher interest rate regime, a much higher growth rate, you know, growth regime, or indeed, uh, you know, um, a significant increase in capital inflows towards Sterling, towards the UK. Um, and I think, if anything, if, if we're going to see anything, we're, we're not going to see it from an interest rate perspective. A growth perspective is, is, is less likely. I mean, it, it, the only real reason you buy Sterling would be if you think we're going to see some kind of massive productivity revolution in the UK. Um, and again, that doesn't seem all that likely anytime soon. Um, well, there, well, there we go. Well, Peter, listen, thank you very much for, for your, your time on today's, uh, on today's podcast. It's, it's great to appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure all of our listeners had, uh, you know, um, have enjoyed listening to your thoughts and, uh, you know, indeed listening to the, uh, the, the broader UK economic outlook. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much indeed.